Well, here in Acts 9, I want to just focus on what we read there about uh, Peter and the incident with Aeneas and later with Tabitha. Now, we are called to be in Christ. We are brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are counted by God as if we are him. That is the basis of our justification, our being declared right. Not of good deeds or anything, but of our being through faith counted by him as if we are in Christ, as if we are Jesus. And yet we are to live out in practice, or try to live out in practice, who we are seen as being in status. And that means that we are to respond to all the prods which God gives us. As we go through life, God brings situations into our lives which have some similarity with the experiences of Jesus as we read them in the Gospels, and we are to perceive that, to attach that meaning to the events in our lives, and to respond, therefore, as Jesus, and to be him in this world. And Peter, in this uh, section here, is a parade example, really, of that. So verse 32, As Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. But as he passes through all these areas, which areas? Well, I think the context is verse 31, Judea and Galilee. And when we read there that Peter passed through, this is exactly the same word used in Luke 17:11 about Jesus going through Galilee. And, of course, Luke was the inspired author of Acts, and as we know, there's a lot of connections between Luke's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. The same sort of words are used, which only occur in Luke and Acts, and the idea is that the Jesus who walked around Galilee was in fact manifested in his people who carried on his work because they also were in Christ. And that's why Acts begins with Luke saying, uh, the former account that I gave was of all that Jesus began to say and do. The implication being, and it didn't finish at Luke 24 when he ascended to heaven, he only began. And he continued through the ministry of those in Christ in the Acts of the Apostles. And in that sense, he is continuing his work today. So that, I think, is the significance of this passed through, being the same word uh, in Luke 17:11 about Jesus passing through the same geographical areas. And therefore, in verse 34, Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Jesus Christ heals you. When, of course, it was Peter standing there healing him. It's as if Peter consciously realized that I am Christ manifest in this world. And that is exactly who we are to be. It's so true that he has no face, no hands, no legs in this world apart from us. We who are the, the body of Jesus. Verse 35, and all the... Uh, dwelt at Lydda, and uh, Sharon saw him, and turned to the Lord. Now, that Greek translated turned, it normally means returned. And you can just check that out quite easily in a, a concordance, that that's generally how it's translated. They returned to the Lord. And I doubt it means that literally every single person in Lydda and Sharon uh, got converted, but perhaps the people in Lydda and Sodom who had already converted to the Lord had sort of drifted away a bit, but when they saw this miracle, they returned to the Lord. 
it's a different word to what you've got in verse 42, when many believed in the Lord. That seems to be talking about first conversion. And it's different, I think, in 35. They returned to the Lord. And yet, in verse 32, we're told that he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. And I would say that the all in 35, in the context, is all the saints who dwelt at Lydda. See, 32, the saints which dwelt at Lydda, 35, all that dwelt at Lydda. The all, I suggest, is is all the saints, the believers. So, although these people had gone off a bit from the Lord, they are still called the saints, the chosen ones. And then I think you, you see a pretty powerful point, that when someone is baptized into the Lord Jesus, so far as we are concerned, seeing that we cannot judge, they must be counted as those who are saints, as those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we can really believe that, as Paul believed it when he writes to the Corinthians, who are doctrinally and morally going seriously astray, he still talks to them as if you are brethren. And if we can really believe that, this takes away from us a huge burden of having to decide whether someone's left the Lord or returned to the Lord or or whatever. We don't know that. We have to just accept that all those baptized into the Lord Jesus are in him, are his brethren. Once a brother, always a brother. The whole idea of calling somebody Mr. Heaster or whatever because you, you now disagree with them, uh, I, I find that absolutely, absolutely wrong. And we save ourselves a huge amount of grief by just accepting that those who are baptized into the body of Jesus, from our point of view, we who cannot judge, we are to accept them as who they were at their baptism in Christ. And I think you also see there the very positive way that the record, which is a reflection of the mind of God, also looks at people. It's rather like in John's Gospel, where we read about many Jews believing in Jesus, and then they turn around and sort of argue with him. You think, wait a minute, who are we reading about? We've just read that these people have supposedly believed in Jesus. So, God sees us by status. It's not as if one minute you're in Christ, then you sin, and you're out of Christ, and then you pop back in again for five minutes or five days or five years, and then you slip off again, and then you come back in again. It's really like any covenant relationship, like a marriage, for example. You still bear the name. The woman bears the name of her her partner, of her husband, even though they may have problems within that relationship. And so it is in our relationship with with the Lord Jesus, that we are covered in him. Now, that should not inspire us uh, or lead us to any kind of uh, slackness, thinking, ah, yeah, well, he accepts me anyway. But I think the other way, that if this is the status that he continues to see me as in, I really must live up to his hope for me, his trust in me. Go on to 38. Well, Tabitha dies, and because, verse 38, Lydda was near to Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there, so they sent two men, just notice that, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. That's exactly what, in essence, happens in chapter 10, that Cornelius sends men to uh, Joppa to get Peter to come to him. And they say, please don't delay, and he comes immediately. 
You see verse 7 of chapter 10, he called two of his household servants and sends them to, to get Peter. So clearly circumstances repeated in Peter's life. Two people come to him and say, hey, come immediately, don't tarry, just come immediately, you're needed. And he drops everything and goes with these two men. And then in chapter 10, the same thing occurs again. Now, our lives do play out according to a pattern, because there is nothing in that sense chance in our lives. Time and chance happens to all men in Ecclesiastes is really a Hebraism for death, that death comes to us all. Um, I don't think it's saying that, you know, some things in our lives are just purely time and chance and God's not in them. God has a purpose with us, uh, a program uh, of education that he's trying to work out with each of us. And therefore, you do see this sense of kind of deja vu in your life, that I have been here, in essence, before. And not only do you see patterns repeating within your own life, that is, if you analyze your life, and the, uh, the unexamined life isn't worth living, some bright spark said, and that, that's pretty true, uh, you not only see the patterns repeating within your own life, you also see them repeating between your life and those of others, both contemporary with you, people you know, and also in biblical history. And that is in order to teach us and to encourage us and to see that actually life is not just a string of random circumstance that just hits us, but that it's really all controlled by God. But just as we have to read these records in chapters 9 and 10 here a couple of times, or several times, uh, to perceive the similarity that two men come to Peter unexpectedly and say, drop everything and come immediately, don't delay, and then that repeats again in chapter 10, uh, so it can happen in our lives that we don't perceive what's going on. It may be that years later we look back at a chain of incidents and we think, wow, yes, that was God there pushing me along. This was all according to some plan in his wider program for, for me. So then, 39, Peter arose and went with them. Exactly the same sort of uh, uh, rubric that, that's used about him arising and, uh, and going with them uh, within, uh, in chapter 10. So then he goes with them and he comes to uh, this uh, dead, dead woman, uh, dead sister, uh, Tabitha or, or Dorcas. And we're told there that he asks the weeping crowd to depart from, from him. He pushes them all out. And verse 40, he kneels down, prays, turns to the body and says, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes. She sees Peter, she sits up, 41, he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and then he calls the other people and presents her alive. And many people believe in the Lord because of that. Now, this is exactly what was going on with uh, Jairus' daughter. And you notice the similarity, of course, between what Jesus says to her, Talitha Kumi, and, and, and the word Tabitha, just one letter difference. So, clearly, there was an element there which was designed by God. The, the similarity between Talitha and Tabitha. That was something Peter could not have orchestrated. That was something he couldn't have arranged. And yet he takes the cue. Uh-huh. 
don't forget he was there when that happened. He was in the inner circle who actually saw the whole resurrection of the girl. And he, he must have thought, uh-huh, yeah, I remember Talitha. And now Tabitha. Uh-huh. Uh, so I've got to be like Jesus. And he just repeats the whole thing absolutely, just as Jesus does. And, of course, it's, uh, it's Luke who records all that. Again, Luke 8.54 is the reference. Again, Luke's theme that the work of Jesus, as he walked around Galilee, uh, was repeated in the work of his, his believers, uh, those who believed in him. And so, both consciously and unconsciously, I think, his very body language and his words reflected those of his Lord. The way he, he prays and turns to the body and the way he helps her to, to sit up, you almost wonder if he, he doesn't say to them, and bring her some food. I mean, he doesn't say he said that, but uh, my, my point is that his whole body language, the way he's acting here, um, and the words he uses are absolutely those of Jesus. And this is really, as I see it, the essence of Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian, a Christ fella, a, uh, one who is in Christ, one who is Jesus, one who is Christ in this world. It is to be so influenced by him, by the record of his actions, his body language that you can see there really, particularly in Mark, I think it's as if the, uh, the camera is right zoomed close onto the very body language of Jesus, um, and of course his words. And Insofar as he is really the light of our lives, insofar as he is the one in whose personality cult we are unashamedly following, then as we meet the circumstances that God providentially brings into our lives, what I've called the prods that he brings into our lives, the cues uh, in the act, as it were, we therefore naturally know how to behave because we have so absorbed him, the Jesus of the Gospels, his actions, his words, that we follow suit with, as it were, the card that God puts on our deck. Now, that means that we really should be centered in our lives upon the Gospels. And I really can only urge you, in your daily life to always be reading something of the Gospels. In the early preface to his monumental work, Studies in the Gospels, Harry Whitaker makes that point that for 50 years he had done that and he was just writing up his, uh, his reflections really on the Gospels. We should be Christ-centered and I would just make the point that it seems to me that we have perhaps been Bible-centered in our community more than Christ-centered. He is to be the, the one for us. And so that really means that in our daily lives we are making that time day by day to really get close to him. And, you know, as he says, I am the light of the world. He is to be the light of all things to us. And we see all things within the light of him. And then you come to Paul's letters, particularly Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and he talks in such exalted terms about the, the greatness of Jesus. 
And it's not that he's just writing difficult theology or, or words which unfortunately Trinitarians and others have misunderstood to teach that Jesus is God. No, he's writing all that sort of high, high stuff about Jesus in a purely practical context. Yeah, you get Philippians 2 is a classic, I suppose, where he starts off his uh, hymn of praise, really, to Jesus by saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That who Jesus was is who we are to be. And because of the height of his exaltation, expressed by Paul in various uh, very uh, high kind of terms, we therefore should bow the knee to his lordship, hour by hour, in our daily lives. This, as I say, is the essence of Christianity. This is it, to absorb his person, his words, his very body language, into our own. That is how it should be, and that's how it was with Peter. And as I say, if God is bringing cues and prods and prompts into our lives so that we also might be like him in this world. Now, I'd like to just conclude with some thoughts from 42 and 43. When this was known, many believed in the Lord. And it worries me that perhaps we can go through life without really understanding basic things like what is faith, what is love, etc. So, to believe, uh, this Greek word pistos, uh, it really means to commit to. That is the idea, the same word as in Luke 16:11. Who will commit to your trust the true riches? To commit to somebody, to give them something. Romans 3:2. Unto Israel were committed the oracles of God. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9:17. Uh, the preaching of the gospel is committed unto me. The gospel was committed unto me to preach. Galatians 2:7. 1 Thessalonians 2:4 is perhaps the clearest. I was allowed of God to be entrusted, entrusted with the gospel. The gospel was committed to my trust. 1 Timothy 1.11, Titus 1.3 So, when we believe in the Lord, we commit to him. We make a commitment, and he makes a commitment to us. And Paul talks about how he is able to keep that which we have committed unto him against that day when Jesus will come back. And so all our thinking, all our life decisions, what career path you follow, how you treat wealth, how you feel about wealth, your aims, your ideas in life, are all influenced by him and by the fact that you have committed all things in your life to him. That is what it means to believe. Therefore, to believe does not simply mean to painlessly tick a few boxes particularly of theology, as it were, to say, okay, well now I'm clear that Jesus was the Son of God, didn't pre-exist, that he's not God himself, etc. Um, and therefore I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm a believer. To believe is not to join a denomination. To believe is not to give intellectual assent. Uh, that is part of it. But essentially to believe is to commit to commit ourselves, to commit everything to him. Uh, and that means that our religion, if you like, our faith, our belief, is not 
is not just part of our lives. It's not that, oh yeah, when it comes to religion, yep, I believe in Jesus. Well, it's not a ticking of boxes. It is an actual committing to him. And it's a, there's a mutuality there, because the gospel is entrusted back to us. It's committed to us in the same way as the talents are trusted to the members of the household. That we now are in that sense, in one sense, on our own, and we now have got to use what's been entrusted to us for him. And he's not going to force us in that sense in how we use what's been entrusted to us. So then, we have been trusted, and we have trusted in him. And that's what these people did when they believed in the Lord in the first century, when Caesar is Lord was really the, uh, the catch cry, the, uh, the, the great motto of the Roman Empire. And yet, for the Christian, Jesus is Lord, the only Lord and Saviour, Jude says. And often you read those kind of phrases in the New Testament, Jesus our Lord and only Saviour. And we may skip over them and not appreciate how radical they were in a society where on the monuments, on the coins, it, on the lips of people was the idea that Caesar was Lord and uh, Nero, for example, on his coins put, you know, Lord and only Saviour. And Jude says and uh, other places in the New Testament that no, Jesus is the only Lord and Saviour. And so to commit of believe in the Lord, Jesus as Lord, was huge. And it's no less radical in our time, and we totally don't get it if we think, oh, those poor darlings in the first century, how lucky we are in the 21st century that it's not quite so difficult, at least in, in many of the, uh, the countries that, uh, where, where people are maybe listening to, to my words at the moment. But actually, the fact is that it's a radical call for all of us. And it is not a ticking of boxes, it is a committal to him. And that is what we celebrate, really, in the bread and wine here. His committal to me, and my committal of all things, back to him.